Welcome to FinTech Fridays. Oh yeah! A weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things FinTech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Hey everybody, my name Connor and you are tuning into FinTech Fridays, brought to you by the National FinTech and Crowdfunding Association, also known as the NCFA. Today, I have an absolutely incredible guest. I got Sharoop Berwani from Senso.ai. Sharoop, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on board. No, absolutely. So for the audience for a minute, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and the inside track of Senso.ai? Sure, sounds good. Uh, we're a data intelligence platform for the retail banking industry. Essentially, what we've done is we've aggregated market-wide data, such as credit data, real estate data, location and geospatial data. And we basically predict when every Canadian consumer is about to switch a credit product, such as a mortgage or a credit card, from one financial institution to another. This really helps sales and marketing teams at retail banks get in front of their customers sooner to be able to be able to provide better offers, better experiences, helping them save money while keeping their wallet share increasing over time and uh, the size of their book as well. And we've been successful to date in uh, working with a number of financial institutions in the Canadian market um, in not only helping them identify sales, internal sales opportunities within their portfolios, but also help consumers save money while increasing their bottom line at the same time. So it's been super exciting for us. The Toronto startup ecosystem has been tremendously helpful in, in launching um, and getting to the stage that we're at. And now we are planning a U.S. expansion. That's absolutely incredible. I can't wait for the uh, U.S. expansion. So your story is a little bit more unique than any of the other startup founders out there. You actually turned your former employer to your customer. Could you share a little bit more of that story? Because I think that story is super fascinating on what you Absolutely. Have. Yeah. Um, you know, it feels like a long time ago. My first customer, um, one of the big prime banks in, in Canada, I actually used to contract for about three years ago. And I've been around the block. And usually when I get into a, a situation where I work for a financial institution, whether it be a full-time or, or a contract position, I build relationships all throughout the organization. Um, but I also, I've always stayed very in touch with the Toronto startup ecosystem. I've uh, witnessed the Toronto startup ecosystem grow to where it is right now since the early 2000s, back in the day when it was just a few people in a room demoing our products to all of these crazy hype events today and all the great hype around tech. I've always managed to stay close to the great people in the startup community. One thing I realized when I was at the tail end of my contract at, uh, at this particular financial institution was I wanted to get back into the startup game. And I had a particular idea of what space I wanted to play in but I just needed to hone in a bit. And so on my lunches and after work towards the last six months that I was on that particular project, I met with anyone and everyone I could that knew something about uh, the space that I wanted to launch a startup in. And, you know, 10 meetings turned to 50 and that turned to 100. And by that time, I had sort of honed in on a very particular insight that uh, not, a, not about a lot of other people had been thinking about at the time. And that's when I knew I was ready to jump ship. I had met my co-founder through those 100 meetings, and I had pulled many of my team members that I've worked with over the, the years in the retail banking space. And that's literally how Senso was born. I jumped ship and we got started to building. And uh, because I maintained great relationships at all the financial institutions I worked with, I essentially went back to the one that I previously left and pitched them the idea and they loved it. 
And, and essentially the rest is history. Uh, they took us on board and instead of being a contractor slash full-time employee, I ended up being a, a vendor. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely incredible. The whole, um, within 50 meetings or so, you find your co-founder in 75. I, I might be messing up the numbers, but like within 75, you actually meet your mentor, which was when, when you broke it down that way, I was like, wow, no, that makes a lot of sense. That makes total sense. I'm like, okay, like 75 meetings in, you feel good. You know exactly what you want to do. You know exactly what, you, what your vision is and you can definitely find a mentor to help guide that. Yeah, and, and the other side of it is just managing risk. People just want to kind of jump into the startup world really not knowing that it is not as glamorous as you see in the, in the media, right? You got to go through, uh, you know, a couple of years of painful sort of figuring out what you're doing and, and that's just the beginning. So that uncertainty you only realize uh, after jumping ship. And, and I was very thoughtful of the fact that in order to mitigate that risk, I needed to build a, a certain amount of runway to survive uh, for a, a set period of time. In my case, it was 18 months and get my family on board. Uh, you know, my, my wife in particular has been a great supporter along the way. That's incredible. It's, it's important to have that, uh, that co-founder of life. <laughs> <laughs> as some might call it. Um, I might be the only one in that sense. <laughs> so um, to jump right into this, AI is a absolute behemoth of a topic, right? When, when you think of AI, it conjures up images between IBM, the big blue player, and the, I guess it's kind of like the world's biggest chess game, right? You have like players like IBM, Amazon, Facebook, you have all these big guys coming into it, right? So I guess for the purpose of the show, what does AI mean to you? What are the key problems that AI will solve in fintech over the next few years? And what does this mean for incumbents, businesses, and just the general public? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So look, put it this way, I'm having come from a banking background, where my team have built these types of predictive models for a number of years. These types of models, um, these machine learning models in particular, have been around for a long period of time. In the past five years, We've really hit a tipping point and this convergence of bigger data sets, more sophisticated algorithms and more computation power, which have enabled this new wave of technology that's really created this hype. And a lot of it is hype, but uh, the concepts of these algorithms have been around for like 40, 50 years. We just haven't been enabled to uh, make use of them until very recently due to the convergence that I, I just spoke about. Now, what I think about AI in general is I do think that um, the most difficult part for me and uh, many people that I see, especially wanting to get into AI, is just seeing through the noise of who's actually simply doing what was always done in the past versus cutting edge actual AI, I would say, right? When it comes to any of this, to break it down, what all of this is is just lines through a bunch of dots. And as simply put it, it is just using statistics and a lot of great data and computation power to come up with these results that get better over time. You know, we've hit that tipping point where a lot of this stuff is useful for enabling computer vision and these other sensory tasks that we see all this magic happening. For me, it's exciting to see that we've hit that tipping point, but, but it's no different from the path that people who have worked with machine learning for many years, it's the same path we're going down and it is getting more exciting because new doors are opening up through the convergence of many of these, uh, many of these things that I've spoken about. But to me, I always question who's actually doing this stuff versus all the hype out there in, from a marketing perspective. And it's hard to differentiate that. And while I would say it's super exciting and, and breakthrough, it's also hard to understand, you know, what is going on the market from who is actually doing cutting edge stuff and who's not. 
uh, it, it is all hype, right? This whole fintech space, this whole boom is all hype. So it should be interesting to see who panders out and who actually sticks through it and who the real players are in the next 10, 15, 25 years. Running an AI-focused company, what does AI mean to you from all the mentors and all the meetings you've had? How did it change from day one of starting an AI-focused company to now that you've actually been through the next 36, ran through Techstars and just have so much more acceleration? Yeah, so I mean... It- whether it was using machine learning and AI um, to solve the problem or not, one thing we knew from the very beginning is we knew intimately what the problem was that we wanted to solve. And that's what we really focused on. It just so happened that uh, we got access to, very early on, a data set that enabled us to prove this worked in a, in a very controlled environment. I think that the support of the AI community in Toronto was perfectly timed for us in that uh, the doors that were open for us um, in terms of resources, in terms of gain data sets, in terms of accessibility to customers who were open to testing this out, all happened at the perfect time for us. But when it comes to being an AI company, I would say it all comes down to the data set you're working with. And if that data set is pure enough to produce the outcomes that you're looking for, or that provide business value to solve that problem or achieve that task, you're in a good spot. But I would say that my recommendation to anyone wanting to start an AI company is if you want to start an AI first company, understand what data you have access to. Because if you don't have access to data, you're not going to be able to do much at the get-go. And that's where I would really think about approach and what type of business you want to become because you don't want to get into an AI business because of the hype of AI and putting that in a flashy deck. You want to get into it to solve real problems and achieve real tasks that drive business value. And then if AI happens to be a mechanism to enable that, that's great. And that's what we realized very early on. And we were just supported by the right advisors and people to be able to bring it to fruition and get to where we are today. I mean, you want to make sure that your models... Uh, makes sense and you have enough data to back it up, right? Because the main reason big businesses are going into AI because they have so much data to pull from, right? That's why Facebook and Amazon are going and even IBM are going into the AI route because they have years and years of data pools they can just start pulling from and just start testing and learning and just building models. Yeah, I mean, those companies have been data-driven from the ground up. So they have an inherent advantage in taking advantage of the most cutting-edge technology I would say many of the enterprise firms out there um, haven't invested the dollars into really streamlining their data to be able to enable a lot of these things. And a a lot of the things we do on a day-to-day basis is ensuring that data is purified to be able to enable the outcomes that we want to achieve. And look, some of the customers that we have and partners that we have have invested very early on into their data and they're in a position similar to, you know, the big four you know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Amazon, to be able to really deliver value outside of this. And I see this on a day-to-day basis, kind of companies that are doing this well and companies that are not. And that is very interesting to see. My insight is the reason why this is taking so long for many of these enterprises to do this is for the very reason that the data is really all over the place and it needs to be brought together and streamlined into sort of an automated process to enable the models to learn versus decay. So I guess, what are the immediate and future opportunities when it comes to AI? And as a community, what does the foundation of AI look like? Yeah, so um, the immediate opportunities, uh, I, I think, are 
the cutting edge opportunities I, I think are happening in things like computer vision, language processing, even the, some of the things we do with more of the sophisticated algorithms and financial services are proving to deliver better results than some of the models that we built from within financial institutions. I think what I'm excited about is once you've purified the data and aggregated the data in a way where you can produce better results using these new algorithms, it's far more accurate than if you just kind of threw a bunch of sparse data into an old school decision tree that's been going on for a while. So I think we've hit that tipping point. To me, the enablement of actually doing that is the most difficult thing. And, and again, like a model may work really well, you know, the first couple of times, but if you don't have that automation and that sort of pipeline, I, I think that your models are ultimately gonna decay and they're not gonna be able to keep up with many of the changes that occur in the market, whether they be economic or behavioral or whatever the case may be. And we see that on a day-to-day -day basis when we A-B test some of the more sophisticated models and, and pipelines we have with some of the other ones that we B test against, which are, are currently being used by many of these companies out there to uh, enable their predictive analytics engines. So I think that's immediate. Future, I think that it, it comes down to the mediums we're gonna be interacting with. Today we interact with our mobile phones but I think tomorrow, they could be completely different devices. Thalmic Labs is launching their new smart glasses. And I think that, you know, once the development community starts building on top of those platforms, it's going to start opening up opportunities for entrepreneurs to build new experiences using AI, using computer vision and all these great things. And I think that's scary because uh, a lot of the stuff you see going on here in terms of research, the exciting uh, research that's happening is, is also the scariest in the sense that being able to mimic uh, someone doing something that isn't actually them, I think that opens up a lot of privacy questions that we're going to have to face in this, in this century. And I think that privacy the way it is today ultimately isn't the way it's going to be in the next century. And I think it's going to open up some really, really interesting debate some sort of solution is going to be necessary in order to resolve the privacy concerns. And that's a whole different discussion that uh, I'm happy to get into uh, in more detail if, if you'd like. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I guess it's, uh, we've talked in a couple of past episodes of the whole digital identity thing, right? And how companies are pushing, people are pushing for this whole digital identity. You deserve to own your identity and you just like your digital identity, right? You, you decide to share and not share whatever information businesses might need and now that you said how AIs can kind of mimic that but that puts that whole sovereign identity all into question because then that gets a little scary uh, absolutely and I think that th that's when people hear you know Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking talk about AI taking over the world everybody pictures like Terminator robots and things like that but I think that in the immediate future it is really these breaches of privacy that you have no control over that are ultimately going to really bring up big questions and make people forget about everything else that existed before because nothing else will matter when you know certain countries are mimicking other political leaders to say something about another country that isn't actually them, right? And I think that that is scary. When I think about children and 
bullying in schools and on social media, you know, the, the ability to mimic someone doing something that they're not actually doing, that being so accessible to us today, that is something that's going to bring up a lot of questions. And I'm on the camp that data, your data should be in your hands. And that is a concept that is, is very great today. And I think that that's going to be one of the biggest things we're going to have to solve for in the 21st century. It's, it's going to be a slippery slope of how do we take the human experience and put it digitally and what do we decide to, to input and not input when it comes to building these AIs, right? Because ideally we want them to be as agnostic as possible. We still want them to have human traits of them because there are amazing things about humans, but there are also very devastating things about humans. So that's going to be a weird balance <laughs> that we're going to be, that, that's, that's going to be happening in the next coming years when it comes to building out these. It's yeah, going to be disruptive, right? It's absolutely. without necessarily our control because, you know, it's in the hands of developers and entrepreneurs who are really enabling these experiences for good or for not good, right? Like, you know, there's, there's both sides of the equation. And we, we've seen this in, in cybersecurity for, for years. There's people who are, are protecting and there's people who are attacking, right? And, and that, that is not going to be a different concept when it comes to the use of AI in these sort of public settings. I, I absolutely agree with you. So, I mean, you've, you've already touched a little bit of uh, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking. So I'm just going to jump into this question. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, you saw Elon Musk go on Joe Rogan. And one of the questions that Joe asked Elon was uh, his fear of AI, right? And Elon's been saying, for years, he's been warning the public and warning people about the dangers of AI and how we're moving a little too fast when it comes to AI. We got to be pretty much pulling the reins, like slowly analyze everything, making sure we're doing this for the right reasons and not jumping because like you've mentioned a couple of times, not because of the hype, right? Even Stephen Hawking, I'm going to quote, the development of the full artificial intelligence could spell the end of the human race. It could even take off on its own and redesign itself as an ever increasing rate humans who are limited by slow biological evolution could not even compete and will be superseded. So that's in and of itself, we are seeing all these entrepreneurs, all these amazing visionaries saying that like, if we don't take a very close look at what we're doing with AI and not believing the hype, they could very much eviscerate the human race and just completely take over because they're, they're evolving within microseconds. So my question is, what are you, what are you at Senso? AI doing priority wise to make sure none of these fears come to reality and hoping that other startups like yourself are doing to make sure these fears don't come into reality. You know, in answer to, in answer to your, your question, it's, it's really, we run our models and our pipeline through in a very controlled setting. And we're constantly monitoring the biases which exist in that, you know, historical data is only good as the humans that input it at it or the process that inputted it, right? But there are ways to rebalance uh, these models to be able to reduce bias. And I think that is a responsibility that every AI company needs to take. Like we heard about Amazon recently launched a recruit recruitment tool, which was quite biased. I think that was a bit premature for Amazon to, to launch that because they had to think about their historical data and how to rebalance that data to ensure that, and I'm not talking about statistical bias, I'm talking about just general human like bias, right? Like the bias you would have towards a gender or a race, right? And those are things we see every day when we use our data and that's where the rebalancing of the data um, is very important and there are techniques to do that. And I think it's the responsibility of every AI company or company that's using 
any sort of predictive analytics to make decisions which impact humans, that's a responsibility they take on. From a more broader perspective in terms of what um, Musk and Hawking are talking about, I question whether it's even, we're even in a position to control that. You know, while it is scary, I think all of us have some sort of an addiction towards social media, inputting information in the internet, searching on Google. We're, those are tools that we've, we, we rely on these days to get information, to see what's going on with your friends, to just have that instant gratification, right? And as generations pass and the younger Generation Z and even younger than that, they don't even question sharing their data. It's inherent in the way that they were raised and they grew up because they grew up with this technology. Can that input of information stop? Because if it doesn't, ultimately, the training of these models and these algorithms is not going to stop. And they are going to get more sophisticated over time. And I think that that exponential increase in inputs that we're feeding in to these systems is essentially what Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking are talking about. And I feel that as humans, we're bad predictors in how soon or uh, how soon things are going to happen. And, you know, whether it's sooner than later or, or later than sooner, I think it's an inevitability that's going to happen. I think all we can do is be responsible, prepare and reduce these biases that exist in our models so that we assure that it's more of an augmented symbiotic relationship versus ones where, you know, the AI's uh, goals are, are different from our own. I guess if we're not if we're not careful, social media and everything else is gonna have a way bigger pull towards us for not even our generation, but for the future generations if we're not careful. Every like, every post, every tap, everything is training, right? Uh, it's training their models. When you look up the Easter Bunny on Google and it presents you with a bunch of pictures of Easter bunnies, you clicking on that image of the right Easter bunny is training their models even more, right? Think about that. That's happening with every single interaction. And where the direction that Amazon, Google, and all these companies are going, you know, eventually, and maybe it's the case right now, we wouldn't know, but uh, maybe their algorithms and their models are much more sophisticated than we think. They may just be controlling it in a way where they, they are taking a responsible approach, but that is questionable. And you get into the whole conversation of regulators actually treating them like the oil companies back in the early 1900s. Are they too big? Do they have too much data? Do they have too much oil to stand on their own? Or do we need to break them apart? So speaking of regulation, we're seeing a huge push of regulation when it comes to the crypto and blockchain space, but we're not really seeing that much regulatory push when it comes to machine learning. My question to you would be, what are some of the regulations you'd like to see put in place? And I guess, what is the role in government? Because you're seeing a role in government starting to form when it comes to blockchain and crypto. Do we want the exact same thing when it comes to AI? I think that, uh, you know, government's got to really think about how to put the right rules in place to be able to ensure that uh, models being released are not biased towards one human outcome or the other and are making the, the right ethical decisions but at the same time, without hindering innovation. And I think those are the two trade-offs are tricky, right? Because I'm a big proponent of faster innovation. And I love this whole concept of entrepreneurs being able to actually create the next Facebook or Uber or whatever the case may be out of their bedrooms. 
But at the same time, based on Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking and, and their concerns and my, my feelings towards that too and what's to come, I, I do think it is a dangerous path that we go down without some sort of rules being in place. And I think that that moment is going to be more evident and it's going to get the attention of regulators at a certain point in the future. And we're, I don't think we're too far away from that. So I know I didn't specifically answer your question, but for me, it's more of a trade-off of innovation versus making sure that these models are built in a responsible way. Right. So it's finding that happy medium of still having regulators, be it the government or be it some other body, making sure that everything's okay, everything's on the up and up. So new players can actually have some kind of structure to work with, but at the same time, not hindering innovation because that's the whole reason why you're seeing such a huge hype behind AI, blockchain, and crypto, because it's, it's very agnostic. It's very decentral, right? Yeah. And, and I wouldn't even say that it has to be regulators to put these rules in. Elon Musk is a guy that put matters into his own hands, right? I, I don't know if it's going to be regulators. Like, uh, is government going to be able to move fast enough and implement regulations based on the real facts? And ultimately, that's the biggest question for me, right? And, and yeah, we'll, we'll see, I think, in the very near future what the outcome is going to be of that. How we pretty much started the whole episode is that uh, you got very lucky when Canada was just getting on the AI boom, right? So Canada has merged as a global leader in AI. How did it happen? And I guess, what does it mean for innovators and investors entering the space? And is it too late to get into the game or is, just, is this just the beginning? Yeah. So, I mean, when we got into it, the AI buzz wasn't, when I decided to do this, we weren't even thinking about AI. It was a consideration that we were going to use predictive analytics and machine learning. Really, I mean, I think about eight months into it, really this whole AI boom started and we were fortunate enough to be very well-timed and being supported by the community very early on when they were still figuring it out. Now it's at a stage where I think it's fairly it's grown, but I think it's still got a long way to go. The community's still figuring things out, and that's going to take a while. I encourage anyone who sees a problem, a big problem, that they could potentially solve as being prime candidates towards starting their own companies. And I think they'll do great, again, as long as they're focused on the problem and ensure that they have the right tools, the team necessary to execute. That opportunity is always going to be there. I think from the challenge right now is for entrepreneurs and innovators is higher levels of competition. And that's something that we're going to continue to see. And from an investor standpoint, again, I think there's a lot of noise over companies that are doing truly innovative stuff and have a good go-to-market plan versus companies that are just putting AI in their deck because it's hype, right? They may be great companies not doing anything related to this stuff, but they may be putting it in their deck basically to get an investor's attention. And I think that that's come to a point where it'll work against you if you just say you're doing AI without having some sort of a fundamental proof that your technology is based on some sort of cutting edge technology that's been accessible to us over the last, let's say, three to five years. What's going to change that would be the education factor towards it, right? Like you're seeing, hey, you're seeing a lot of startups even throw an ICO and even just tokenize their whole business, even though they may or may not even actually need one, right? It's, it's a lack of education thing. I think in the next three to five years, you have amazing companies like you and some of the other ones in the space, educating people, teaching people that like, hey, this is what AI is. This is what AI means to us. And more inform the general public, um, just innovators and investors are when it comes to that space, it's just going to start weeding out 
all the BCD players. It is, yeah. People are just going to become, as you said, more educated on this. And I think that the great thing about um, these podcasts that you're doing is it enables people to become more in the know when it comes to what is actually real versus what's not, what's worth investing time and, and money into versus not. Look, I'm very sympathetic towards all entrepreneurs, and I encourage even first-time entrepreneurs to go for it and really think through and mitigate your risk in, in starting this, and you'll be supported by the community. But, but ultimately, you know, entrepreneurs usually have to go through a road of paying their dues in order to realize what it, this game is all about. But everybody's got to go down that path, right? But I think that as people get more educated through podcasts like this and through the community, it's, it's going to be easier to differentiate between ones that are real and not. There's no shortcuts when it comes to entrepreneurship, even though podcasts and blog posts and videos on YouTube are definitely going to greatly help. Uh, you still have to, again, pay your dues, still go through many obstacles, fail, try again, fail, try again, right? There's no, there's no shortcuts. And a lot of, again, these BCD players are going to learn that. Sadly, the hard way, but again, that's, that's life. Man versus machine. I know we touched, this, we touched a little bit of what, what is this going to look for the generations to come. So man versus machine, who's winning? And I guess what will the future look like for our kids, right? We're already seeing this rise of you're seeing babies just being drawn towards tablets. And like, I don't know if you see the, the, the there's, there's, a, there's a cute little video of like this baby who had a tablet and then the mom took away the tablet and then she was just on the table and then it was a glass table and she was trying to swipe and she couldn't. And she's like, she's looking at the parents like, well, what happened? Like they gave her a book. She couldn't swipe on the book. Like she was losing her mind. I guess, is, is that, is that the future for our kids? Like, is it only going to get downhill from here? Like, what's your opinion on that? Yeah. I mean, look, I don't know if it's, it's, it's downhill. I'm, I'm more of an optimist when it comes to technology enabling us to do better. That side, I also see the other side of it. And um, look, I look at it from the perspective of, of a dad, you know, like uh, having a young daughter at home. Um, really, uh, I, I see her older cousins and all the people that are around her, the kids that are around her, really being attracted towards technology. And I think generation after generation, it's just becoming more and more natural for these kids to resonate towards technology. And I think it's inevitable the path that we're going to go down. I don't see anything stopping it. Um, maybe regulation can come in, but technology has always found a way to break through. It may pause it for a little bit or it may slow it down, but it's inevitable that one day something incredible is going to happen. And it's, it's also scary too, right? So I think our kids are going to grow up in, in a very different world than we grew up in. I remember when I was a kid, man, it wasn't about sitting at home, you know, playing video games or anything like that. It was about playing outside and uh, not coming home until dinner time, right? Like that was, that was like literally my summer vacation. You know, it was, it was never in front of screens or anything like that. Kids of today are very different in that technology is part of their lives from the minute, from the minute they're born. You know, I, I think that that's something that we need to accept. And I think that based on our discussion, the last question on educating entrepreneurs and venture capitalists on what startups are real or not, we also have to educate our, our children from a very early, uh, early stage about things like, what are the costs and consequences about sharing your data? Don't just really share your data. Think about the fact that when you share your data, someone needs to give you something in return and you have control over that data. 
understand that everything that you post or everything that you display publicly is accessible to a man or a machine that could use that data for good or for evil, right? And, and these things could have consequences to you as you get older. And I think that it should be a part of our education system in, in teaching our kids to be very conscious about the way they look at interacting with machines. Um, on the other side of it, I, I think that machines being a part of our lives, we wouldn't be where we are today and we wouldn't be able to do all of these things, these virtual podcasts or anything like that without the augmentation of machines. And I think it's incredible the fact that anyone can create this out of their bedroom or their garage. And I'm excited for that. I'm excited to teach my kids to be entrepreneurs um, and to use technology to create and to make and to build for their entire lives. Because when you think about the future of work, I see it more like being an entrepreneur versus working at, you know, in a cubicle for 30 years um, at a large corporation, right? And, and, and that is the future that I find exciting. And uh, I think if our kids are educated, They'll grow up in a way where they'll harness this technology and use it for good in a controlled way where they'll protect themselves at the same time. Yeah, I, th I think having the talk of just understanding the both the positives and the consequences of technology and the new waves of technology, um, I think that's a very important talk for parents, teachers, like any, anybody with like younger siblings or just younger kids and, and making them understand of like, hey, yeah, the terms and the conditions that everybody skips over is, is very important to actually understand having these free services and you freely sharing your information that there might be consequences and like repercussions in the future and just Absolutely. understand yeah. that like right like, like everything in the internet's forever and you have to be cognizant of it like even though you're a kid you have to be still have to be cognizant of like what you say and what you don't say absolutely and look i, I hope our education system is thinking about uh, embedding these sorts of learnings, consistent learnings uh, throughout, you know, the process from a very early stage. Um, look, I think that in the future, even now, uh, the, the, the talk with your kids about screens and machines is as important as the birds and the bees. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely agree with you. Um, and it, it might not even be school systems, right? It just might be another educational entity, right? You're seeing a rise of online courses, everything I learned business-wise and marketing-wise, I learned online. I, I learned through YouTube and like Udemy and all these other courses compared to college. So you might be seeing a shift when it comes to kids as well. Like if they want to learn how and what decentral AI looks like, boom, there's 15 YouTube videos. I'll just give you a step-by-step -step walkthrough of what that looks like. On that, on that note, right, I think, you know, one of the other fundamental shifts that's going on right now is that if you're not a lifelong learner, Ultimately, you're going to fall behind because things are changing at, at an exponential pace. It's not about getting a university degree anymore and working at the same job for like 30 to 40 years. Your graduation from a university is just the beginning of your learning path for the rest of your life. And I think that the society needs to go more towards that than anything else. And that is essentially why entrepreneurs become entrepreneurs, because their inherent value um, ultimately is going to increase along the way at a much faster pace than if you're in an environment that doesn't enable that type of forced learning based on these situations that you're put in front of that you really got to dig yourself out of. And that's what entrepreneurship is, is great for and all about. Despite how hard it is, your inherent value increases at a much faster pace. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you. There's a really great uh, Muhammad Ali quote when he said that, um, if I think the exact same way that I thought at 30, at 50, then I've wasted 20 years of my life. I know that one all too well. Yeah, I know it's a great quote. Um, and that's exactly what I'm talking about.
Uh, Shrew, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. I cannot wait to have you on the show again. Awesome. Pleasure. So on the behalf of the National Fintech and Crowdfunding Association, I wish you an amazing Fintech Friday and weekend. You've been listening to Fintech Fridays, brought to you by NCFA and Partners. Tune in weekly for the latest Fintech Friday podcast by subscribing to this channel. The National Crowdfunding and Fintech Association of Canada is a nonprofit actively engaged with social and investment fintech sectors around the globe and provides education, research, industry stewardship, services, and networking opportunities to thousands of members and subscribers. For more information, please visit ncfacanada.org.